0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Warren E. Miltier, Jr. to discuss his new book, Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2021. Trends in scholarship and our desire to critically engage with the institution of slavery's profound impact on American society often lead us to focus on people of color who were enslaved. But my guest directs our attention to the people of color who were free colonists and later Americans, and the complex web of intersecting values that led to significant inconsistencies in how they were treated and the institutions they built for themselves. Dr. Miltier does not deny that many white Southerners prized the racial hierarchy that placed them above people of color in multiple phases of their lives, yet Beyond Slavery's shadow insists that they also recognize other forms of hierarchy, such as gender, wealth, reputation, occupation, and family connections. And by engaging how these and other forms of hierarchy intersected with racial categorization, Dr. Miltier creates a rich history of people of color in the South. Actually, I found this to sort of be like a history of law, colonization, labor, immigration, taxation, sort of everything. Um, He rejects laws and political rhetoric as the only evidence for discerning the viewpoints of everyday people. And he looks to place everyday people in their wider political and social contexts by drawing from various sources from the colonial period through the Civil War. Beyond Libre-Shadow explains how diverse political and social attitudes could coexist, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Warren uh, E. Miltier Jr. to the program. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, and he's also the author of North Carolina's Free People of Color, 1715 to 1885, published by LSU Press last year. Warren, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So like one of the premises of your book is that free people of color are understudied uh, and sort of uh, dwarfed in some way by our focus on people who are enslaved. And you end the book with an observation that we've simplified our understanding of race from the 17th to the 19th centuries by by not thinking about all peoples. Uh, so, and that impacts our wider understandings of of race. So there, there's a lot happening in this in the in the book. And and but because it is understudied and because you acknowledge that throughout the book, so lots of people who are listening right now don't actually know what we're, what we're gonna focus on. Let me so before we talk about how the scholarship on this developed and the rest, let me just start with some basics who are the free people of color who were in the colonies and later in the U S and, and how were they distributed across the country?
0: Okay. So, um, free people of color that I'm talking about in this book or writing about in this book, uh, come from a diversity of backgrounds. Um, most of them are people of either African and or native American descent, um, and, you know, to what degree they're connected to one group or another varies uh, pretty widely. Um, and as far as free people of color and how they became free, so there were people who were born free, and then there were people who were enslaved and became free through the process of manumission. And so people of color could become free. Um, through the process of manumission in a lot of different ways they could purchase their own freedom. Um, they could negotiate their freedom in exchange for labor. Um, there are people who are free when other individuals would purchase them. So maybe a family member, a friend, uh, some free people of color even would hire other individuals to, uh, pay for their freedom, then they would pay them back later. So there were all, a, a lot of different uh, ways that a person beca- could become manumitted. And then as far as free birth is concerned, in most of the colonies, uh, for most of the time period in which I'm studying, uh, if your mother was free, you were free. And a lot of the families in the colonial period in particular that were uh, freeborn families gained that freedom because they were a descendant of a white woman or a Native American woman. And in most colonies, if you had that background, then you were automatically considered free.
1: There's another, uh, thank you so much, there's another um, aspect of this that you highlight throughout the book, which is, is who colonized which part of uh, uh, the landmass. So Uh, You talk a little bit about the difference between being under French, Spanish, or English rules. And I was wondering if you'd just say a little bit about that, because I found it fascinating.
0: Yeah. So I, I, first of all, will say that uh, I decided to look at the situation of free people of color in these different empires, partially because it hadn't been uh, looked at very closely, especially in the, the larger studies of free people of color. But I also thought it was important because it does uh, these differences in location affect the lives of free people of color and what's possible. Um, So, for instance, I talk about in the Spanish Empire that the rules around manumission are a little bit different than those in the English. And the same will go for the French. Um, Also, in the earlier parts of my book, I talk about how The contest between these empires impacted the lives of enslaved people who would become free uh, because the colonial conflicts created opportunities for enslaved people to become free because they could run from one empire into another empire and then gain their freedom that way, uh, which was not a typical form of manumission, but it did exist and was important to shaping uh, the colonial dynamic. Uh, between these empires and also the lives of the individuals that I discuss,,
1: uh, you mentioned earlier that most of these legal regimes were tracing status through the mother. And one of the things that I noticed throughout this book is the the care that you take with gender uh, throughout. you know it, it's 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 very mainstreaming, and it's also very um, careful to point out when it is that patriarchy can be something that is used by free people, free men of color to, to create their own forms of hierarchy. But I will talk about that later, but, but in terms of tracing things through the mother, that's fairly unusual in English law, um, at least, which I'm more knowledgeable about than Spanish or French law. Can you say a little bit more about how that comes about that, that, that the, the, the identity has to be, the mother,
0: and not the father? Well, I mean, it comes about in the development of uh, slave laws in the colonies and trying to figure out exactly how you're going to define who will be enslaved and who will not. Um, And I think also there's just something very practical to it. It's easier to understand who a person's uh, mother is when it comes to enslavement Um, versus trying to figure out who the father is, trace that person, and then determine whether um, an enslaved person is enslaved or if you're dealing with a free person. Um, So you you could imagine how difficult it would be if you're, say, the person who's enslaving a woman and she has a child and you don't know whether that child is your property or not. (laughs) It's much more simple, I think, under this particular system but in the reverse of course it also creates a situation where free people if their mothers are free that they're free Um, but at the same time we see some interesting things happen with that that I talk about as far as like servitude status that uh, although some children are born free they also are inheriting the servitude status of their mother um, which often leaves them to uh, many years of unpaid work and maybe even in certain cases generations of uh, people being tied into this system of unpaid work.
1: That was a shocking. That was a shocking number in the book. Thirty-one. That 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 women who had a child without being married, that child who had nothing whatsoever, as you note in the book, nothing whatsoever to do with this, must be indentured for. 30 31, I can't remember which one it is and and that was extraordinary and a, and a, and a, a, and a, a remark another one of the remarkable moments in the book where you see the intersection of race and gender and and how it is that they are punishing uh, any sort of sexual relations outside of marriage in addition to, any sort of mixed racial sexual relations. Like it's, 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 you do such a good job on that, but I found that part of the book actually awful. I had to close, I had to close up for a little bit to let that sink in. Um, I mentioned the previous literature. Let's talk a little bit about when is it that historians, and others begin studying free peoples of color. How do they do it? What's wrong with the way, or what's problematic about the way that they start? And so sort of take us through your field up until the time that you write this book.
0: Yeah, so I would say that the first serious studies of free people of color are published in the early 20th century. Um, There's a study about free people of color in Virginia, about free people of color in Maryland um, and I would say that the there are several problems with those studies while I think in general they are pretty well researched especially for the time period and the um, access that those historians would have had to records um, some of the undertones as far as Respecting the subjects that are being studied uh, suggests that these scholars are um, their their approach is a bit problematic. They have some they don't see um, all of the possibilities in their subjects as far as being human beings. <laughs> and I would say the next generation of scholars that are coming in, say the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, this is where we see. The first series studies by uh, scholars of color; those scholars are definitely impacted by the people who are writing in the early uh, 20th century, especially in the structure of the books. So most of these early texts, whether it's you know the beginning of the 20th century or somewhere more towards the the middle of the 20th century, are they're more thematic, which is not necessarily problematic, but there's, there's a structure that's clearly being copied over and over again. Um, and in some of these books there seems to be a, con- a conclusion that free people of color are kind of stuck in this terrible social political situation. It gets worse as time goes on. And Ultimately, I don't think there's enough um, flexibility in the understanding of free people of color's positions in society that they can have multiple positions um, as a group. Um, there, I mean, so the I guess this is a thing; it's tricky because you know a lot of these works, the authors will make arguments that don't always fit with their evidence, so that, that's very curious and that actually continues on um, when we get even to the 1970s with Ira Berlin and his book Slaves Without Masters which is uh, a text that is widely cited even today uh, because it's, it's basically a synthesis of this earlier work but then Berlin did um, add some additional material to his study of free people of color um, and in Berlin's work after looking at these other works and coming to his own conclusions, one of the the main arguments that he makes is that free people of color, their status is very similar to that of enslaved people. It's almost like the state owns them versus uh, an individual master holding people. Um, But at the same time, Berlin throughout the book will hint at the fact that, well, there's some class differences between free people of color uh, or among free people of color, or that they have different types of jobs that lead to different outcomes in their lives, that some have slightly different social networks than others, but ultimately he comes to this this same conclusion. Um, So it's kind of curious how he, he, he developed that argument about slaves without masters that is very much tied to uh, how the book is understood by, I think, most historians and even the larger public, those who've been able to access the book.
1: It seems so similar to in the 20s. It seems like it's the study of people, but a people without who've had autonomy taken away, but yet the historians themselves have taken their autonomy away by talking about them not as the protagonists, not as uh, people who have a, a contribution to these communities and to these social relationships. It's, its That's absent. And it's interesting that that hangs on for so long. And what's so clear about your book is that, that the focus is there, is is not that free people of color could do anything they wanted, because you're very clear about the limitations that they were working under. But you're also talking about different humans in different groups, in different places, all... Uh, making very different decisions about how to organize. So there's, there's a lot of pluralism, but that seems to me part of the point. The point is that you can't talk about autonomy without, sorry, I'm being maybe too much of a political theorist here, but th- that seems to be a big contribution of your book. Y- you mention the documents. So what did they have in the 20s what did they get in the 70s, and and what is it that you have now that is different? Like uh, uh, the the back of the book has a list of the resources that you looked at, and it's head spinning. I mean, I mean, it it's clear through the writing of the book that it had to be like that. But can you describe a little bit for listeners what it is they had, and, and what it is that you use to make these observations about everyday life that's different from what's in the legal statute books or printed in a newspaper?
0: I think the early generation of scholars that were working at the beginning of the 20th century, um, the limit that they had when it came to sources was about the lack of, uh, I guess, a central location for their archives. So a lot of the materials that are now may be located in one state archive were spread out across the state in different counties. So they would have to go from county courthouse to county courthouse looking for these materials um, and putting that all together. And because it takes so much time, it definitely limits what what you can do. Although I think it's amazing to look at what they found despite um, their, their situation when it came to the spread of sources. You can tell that these people actually were probably
1: funded fairly well <laughs> to be able to go around and do yeah. what they did and you say it was very regional too because because yeah. of this method that that if you were going to have to go to the courthouse and copy stuff out because you didn't have a phone to take a photograph of or a photocopier that 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 would you know limit what it is you could actually do and people became very very specialized about these these one one community or one part of a state not even an entire state i mean these are big states that we're talking right. about
0: Right, exactly. And so that's why you see pretty much all of the studies before the 1970s are state-level studies. And then, of course, there are articles that are published that are maybe about a single uh, city or county or something like that. Um, Now, interestingly, I did have the opportunity to hear John Hope Franklin discuss how he did his research for the free Negro in North Carolina, which was published in the 1940s. And um, it's it's a funny story because, in a sense, he had to go to the state archives in uh, North Carolina, in, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And at the time, it was segregated. So he was not allowed to sit in the same area with everybody else. But apparently, it was to his benefit that that was the case because they put him in the stacks and so he had to just hang out in the stacks all day and had very easy access to the materials in a way that people who were seated at the tables would not um, but nevertheless John Oliver's story yeah it, he's still operating you know in this this situation in which uh, segregation is dominant in uh, North Carolina and so it would have been very difficult for him to go around the courthouses things of that nature, I mean, it's actually still difficult today to go around courthouses to some extent, um, depending on where you're going. And so I guess in 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 one way, like I said, he benefited because by the time he's doing his research in the 1940s, a lot of material from the counties has been located or centralized at the State Archives in Raleigh. Um, but at the same time, it also... Gives him only this one little space to really operate in. Um, and of course, I, I was able to go much further than that. And then by the time we get to the 1970s with Ira Berlin, so I'm assuming you know that Berlin actually probably did some of his re- research in the 1960s. Um, Berlin has a lot more secondary literature, of course, to work with than, say, somebody like John Hope Franklin, who was writing in the 1940s. Um, and so he's able to take all of these different books, and then he adds a lot of newspapers uh, from microfilm to that research. He does go to uh, other repositories around the country and uh, finds letter collections. Uh, he uses a lot of uh, books that would, uh, I guess, like law books, basically that would give him some sense of what the different laws were and he, had, he ends up depending on those books quite a bit um, to figure out what the opinions are of people at the time and you know I, I don't know if if he had had more time or money more money if he would have necessarily changed his argument I'm not sure because I think some of the evidence he has he could have easily have made a different argument um, but that that's the situation that I think he was working with. And after Berlin writes his study, we see historians kind of going back towards local studies. Some of them are, are very local. So again, these, this, there are books now about counties or cities versus writing books about states or whole entire regions. Um, and so one of those key works is Melvin Patrick Ely's Israel and Mathematics, which looks at one um, county in Virginia. Now, I think what Ely was able to do that some of the other scholars were not is that because he focused on one county, he could go through various types of records that I don't think some of these other scholars had engaged with because um, it depends on the location, but you would have not just... Records related to maybe criminals, uh, but there are records of poor house the poorhouse in a community. There are records about um, registration, so free people of color in the 19th century in Virginia were supposed to register. So he could work with those records. It's just a, a he had a wider assortment of different types of records to use because he focused on one place, whereas people who are trying to look uh, at a more wide geographic span. Are having to, you know, pick and choose what collections they have time to engage with. Um,
1: so before we get to the argument of your book, just t- tell me shortly what 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 kinds of things are you using? Are some of them going back to things that uh, need to be looked at with fresh eyes? Uh, are some of these things new? Is digitizing make it easier for you to access things? Because part of what you're contributing here is to think broadly about free people of color in the South, not to provide a, a, a regional uh, view or examination, but to really think more uh, globally. So uh, what, 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 what does it look like? And also, if you would share your an aha moment in the archives, that'd be awesome as well.
0: Yeah. So I guess it's, it's, it's a tricky question because my process has been very long Um, because, of course, I wrote another book about free people of color before this one that we're talking about today. So by doing research on a state, I was able to get some sense of the different types of records that existed within that state. And, yeah, I think I did benefit, especially when it comes to digitization of, like, uh, newspapers and even some books, it it makes uh, the process Faster to locate law books and um, things of of that nature um, versus having to sit in the library and and flip through every single book. You can use you know a search term and find things very quickly. So I, I definitely have to credit the technology to some extent on that end. But then. Going back to this earlier study that I had worked on for North Carolina, because I was familiar with the types of records that were in North Carolina, I was able to apply that knowledge when I went to other states and it made it relatively easy to figure out where records about free people of color are. Because there's certain types of records, you know, oh, free people of color rarely appear in these records. Don't spend your time digging through these. Uh, Whereas you know free people of color are going to be in another type of record, and you should definitely uh, spend time looking at those particular records if you want to know more about free people of color in that particular state or location where I was uh, doing research. And as far as something interesting in the archive that is really tricky um yeah i mean i've i've seen some creepy things in the archive like hair from dead people i've seen that kind of stuff that's probably the that's probably the craziest thing i've ever seen
1: okay these are not cleaned up records these Uh, these are sitting there and well uh, with uh, with dust and hair okay no that's 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 visual that's great for for a podcast well, let's let's turn to the uh, argument of the book. You, it's the the book is arranged chronologically. You start in the colonial period. We've talked a little bit about this, um, but and I always struggle with history books. Just full disclosure as as to you know whether to try to run through the, run through them the way they were written or to to deal with them thematically. I I think I'd like to start with a little bit about each of these periods because I think it creates this arc that takes us to the end of the book. So with with your permission, I'll ask you, tell us a little bit about what things look like in the colonial period. You've already said there's differences because of the Spanish, the French, the English um, relationships with indigenous peoples, which are quite different uh, in different areas. But tell us a little bit more about how how many free people of color are there in this period, roughly, Uh, you note in the book that that they're very different, and that in some in the cities uh, they're perhaps wealthier and more connected to the economy of slavery, whereas in the upper South um, things look a lot different. So, just just a couple of insights before we turn to the to the Revolutionary War and how things change uh, for free people of color during that period.
0: Yeah, so in the colonial period, it's really difficult to actually pin down how many free people of color were in the South in any particular location Um, based on just their appearance in the records it seems very likely that Virginia and Maryland which are two states or colonies at this time that um, will have large populations of free people of color throughout this period that I study uh, probably were the leading areas even in the colonial period Um, because you see a lot of white indentured servants who are recorded having uh, children out of wedlock with people of color, and so their children end up being like this early generation of free people of color in the colonies. Um, And then, you know, I think North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, um, Delaware are probably behind those two. And, and exactly where they are. It's really tricky to figure that out. Um, and then as far as like their, their locations and towns and cities, now of course they're not, oh, they're not many, there's many towns or cities in the, you know, colonial South, but they're, they're clearly a presence of free people of color and say Charleston. Um, or maybe the slightly more urban, if we want to call anything in colonial Virginia urban, but yeah, it's the slightly more urban, more settled areas of Virginia on the Eastern part of Virginia. You you tend to see uh, more references of of free people of color there for sure. Um, And the the same would go probably Eastern Maryland and that area, but even, you know, Baltimore is, is not much of anything in the colonial period.
1: So as we get to the revolutionary war, uh, What do free people of color do during the war? How does the war affect their status, their choices?
0: Yeah, so there's a lot going on in the American Revolutionary, during the American Revolution, and in that general like uh, late 1700s period. Um, So one major change that uh, I think is really important is that you have a shifting and Of boundaries with the empires following the Seven Years War so areas that were once controlled by the French end up being taken by the Spanish the areas that were controlled by the Spanish end up being taken over by the British and um, in the case of the areas that were taken over by the Spanish that used to be in the hands of the French uh, particularly the Louisiana uh, the introduction of Spanish law creates opportunities for manumission that had not existed under the French, uh, empire. And so you have a steady growth of free people of color in Louisiana that had not been there before. Um, and of course that would make Louisiana a central location, especially in the deep South for free people of color later in the uh, 19th century. Yeah, I, I think a, uh, another important shift that takes place during this revolutionary period is um, in the British colonies, and these, these colonies, of course, are going to be uh, those that will make up the early United States. But there's a convergence of ideas about freedom that uh, you, you could tie to the revolution, but also um, there's discussions within religious communities about whether slavery is right and fits with their understanding of their religion. And these, these two issues or two discussions come together and lead to the liberalization of manumission laws and many of the Southern colonies, especially those in the upper South. And that provides a, uh, great opportunity for enslaved people to seek out their own um, freedom and those the freedom of their family members and so of course they do this in a variety of different ways as i talked about it there are so many ways to become manumitted but the the major change is the the ideas that people are now there are people who are willing to listen to the idea that maybe slavery is wrong. Ultimately, we know that uh, there is a pushback uh, and that there are large numbers of people who are very much invested in slavery and want to keep it going in uh, the revolutionary period and beyond.
1: Yeah, and you do a great a great job in that chapter of sort of uh, individualizing the various landowners, people who, uh, again, for Christian reasons, decide... I should not be holding property in persons. Um, and and that's so well done, the way those two things come through. I, you know, I should add for those people who are thinking about reading the book that this is a book that just reads. I actually just sat on a couch and read it, you know, not taking notes on it. Um, so it's, it's a great read as a serious reader, as somebody who studies this period. I made lots of um, tabs. To go back to add things for um, uh, the American political thought class that I teach and research that I would do. So, and it's also a book that would be accessible to students. So, this is this is a book open to serious readers. Very important for scholars, but also something that is accessible to to you know to a not a freshman maybe undergraduate, but to an undergraduate under some you know with with some help. Um, you mentioned the backlash. Uh, what what happens uh, in the revolutionary period that creates this this backlash, and what are some of the just the the, the highlights of that?
0: Yeah, so I think that you know even as these laws about manumission are liberalizing uh, or people are liberalizing, these laws are changing the laws, and many of them to make it easier for enslaved people to become free people. There are people who are, are deeply interested in maintaining slavery as it is and even potentially expanding it and of course as we get into the 19th century we see the addition of new states that are open to slavery and those are new opportunities for people who are slaveholders even in the upper south because of course the upper south will be a place that uh, exports large numbers of enslaved people to the deep south so there's this business opportunity there and those individuals don't want um the manumission liberalization to go too far and end up destroying the possibilities for them so they they push back and also there is uh groups of people who are concerned with strengthening maintaining and strengthening the racial hierarchy and so i argue that these people who I, I describe as white supremacists and, um, these pro-slavery people kind of work together to create an environment in the South that is more difficult for free people of color to navigate. Uh, some of them, I think they, that is the actual purpose is to make life difficult for free people of color. For others, I think they're just doing this to appease certain constituents or, to show that they are trying to strengthen the importance of slavery altogether, And they target free people of color as a way of doing that.
1: One of the points that you make throughout the book is that there's the laws that are on the books and there's this fairly radical, not fairly radical rhetoric, radical white supremacist rhetoric that appears in newspapers. But what, you try to do is use the sources that will allow you to see, well, what's actually happening in terms of how people marry and who gets recognized. So for example, even though a community is not supposed to recognize a marriage, they do. Um, Can you say a little bit about these legal regimes and how free people of color negotiate them and as well as white people, but uh, how they're negotiated at this more local level?
0: Right, yeah, so a lot of the legislation dealing with free people of color is being produced at the state level. Uh, So it's coming out of the state legislatures, uh, being signed off by the governor. Uh, But ultimately, it's up to local officials at the county level or in parish level, wherever you are, uh, city level, to take these laws and make them reality. And in many cases, uh, they do that, but in many cases they don't. Uh, and I think each community and the leadership in that community had their own reasons for making decisions to enforce or not enforce these, uh, difficult laws. Some of them I think were just not very practical. So there were restrictions placed on, um, the movement of free people of color into different communities. And you really need an enforcement regime in order to uh, support restrictions on people's movement. And the state didn't provide anything like that. No, no, there was no serious attempt made to uh, Especially outside of like port City. so there was there was some uh, enforcement at a port city because it's easy to police people coming off a boat. It's much more difficult to police people crossing a state border, going through a swamp, uh, trying to go from one state to another. And so I think that's part of what's going on. And then two, there are you know kinship connections between white people and free people of color across the South, and those connections made a huge difference in the lives of the free people of color who could call on them when they were needed. Um, Or just friendship connections, family connections that may have gone back for generations. All of those um, relationships played an important role in how uh, free people of color experience day-to-day life and often that day-to-day life did contrast with what uh, you would assume was going on based on the laws and the, the laws in the book on the books.
1: So by the first decades of the 19th century, uh, what we have is this, as you've described it, this, this hardening of white supremacy changes in the laws. Meanwhile, a local negotiation of that, um, the time we get to sort of the middle, well, it's past the middle of your book, but, uh, the rebellion and, uh, you, so you, 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 you talk about not Nat Turner, you, you, you start with other people that I've not heard of, which is why I'm sort of struggling to remember their names here. But what is it that happens, uh, after this period of change and yet equilibrium at the same time, uh, that sort of defines this new this new era as we move through the 19th century.
0: Right. So, yeah, in, in the book, I discuss the uh, 1831 Nat Turner Rebellion that took place in Southampton County, Virginia. And in my discussion, I focus on the immediate effects of that rebellion and how certain free people of color in Virginia and North Carolina in particular um, were affected were affected by the aftermath. So there were free people of color who were arrested, harassed, things of that nature. Um, But I also use that particular section of the book to discuss how political figures and people who oppose the presence of free people of color tried to weaponize that particular moment for their benefit. So there are laws passed in many parts of the South that um, add additional limits to the lives of free people of color, additional restrictions. Uh, there's support for the colonization of free people of color in Africa because there's individuals who want to remove free people of color from the South. And so you see uh, the They were able to be somewhat successful after the rebellion. But I look at the rebellion as more of an opportunity for them to respond politically than necessarily that they were coming up with new ideas because of the rebellion itself. It was more like these were old ideas that they had failed to get through uh, their state legislatures before, and now with this moment, they could make it happen. That's how I'm looking at it. And uh, following that discussion, I continue to talk about the different ways that they are trying to uh, manipulate the law to target free people of color and further support this agenda. And again, they're often passing laws that are not new. Uh, So there's disfranchisement of free men of color in uh, Tennessee and North Carolina that takes place in the 1830s that's not a new concept disfranchising free people free men of color had been going on since the late 1700s and there were other moments uh that that happened so the Nat Turner rebellion in other words didn't create that idea for lawmakers in north carolina tennessee um uh, and they'd actually tried that before and it was in the 1830s though they were finally able to make it happen and there are several other uh issues that come up, uh, amongst lawmakers and extreme ideas. And I, I trace them throughout the, the chapter, all these crazy, uh, attempts to, to curb the lives of free people of color from, you know, all the way from restricting them, uh, from the right to vote to trying to enslave free people of color. All these ideas are floating out there. in the,
1: uh, a while back, wow, it's a year, maybe, uh, I talked to, uh, uh, to Gilda Daniels about her book on voter suppression. You know, she's not a historian, she's a lawyer, but what she's trying to say is that so many of the things that we see today in terms of voter suppression are are recycled. And I, I felt similarly about your chapter of showing how everything that you outlined earlier, um, because you're, you're talking about very early, early colonial um, uh, practices, comes back... Is recycled, is radicalized, etc. But you're also really focused on resistance, and um, uh, and so I'd like you to say a couple of things. About, and there is some movement. Some people do leave. I mean, this is like a, a natural reaction to uh, to violence. But some people resist. Uh, talk a little bit about the institutions that they use to resist. And also, as I said uh, earlier, you know, you're very sensitive to gender and talk a little bit about how resistance uh, plays out across these uh, across this period
0: right yeah so the resistance uh, can vary in shape and form but of course you see resistance through the courts so uh, some free people of color will challenge uh the laws or they at least push back when Local officials try to enforce these discriminatory laws against them, um, and they will have lawyers who come with often very interesting approaches to challenging the laws. Uh, often, it's just to get them as individuals out of the situation, uh, but nevertheless, it's very they, creative. Yeah, they, they're they're very creative, but nevertheless, they are pushing back. They're they're not just uh, sitting there and letting these uh, laws totally control their lives if they have an opportunity to get out of the situation. And of course, it's much easier to get out of these situations if you have the money and connections to make it happen than if you're a person who doesn't have that. Uh, so that that's one major way.
1: Yeah. And say just a little bit about that because, because class is really important throughout this book and, and you emphasize that you know there are free people of color who have, generations of education and a certain form of affluence uh, and uh, social capital that they they and financial capital that they can put to use I mean we all know lawyers are expensive and and often use these forms of um, of problems to to create you know a way to make their own living so so just say a little bit about how it is that uh, the least well-off, Fair in this period?
0: Yeah. So I mean, you've got free people of color, of course, who are pretty well to do. They're planters. Um, some of them are even uh, slaveholders, and they're enslaving other people and using that as a way to make more money. And those people are able to, in particular, those people are able to, you know, accumulate the resources that allow them to. Overcome laws such as uh, in in most of the South, free people of color are not allowed to testify in court against white people. Yet, uh, they're free people of color who can sue white people and win judgments against them uh, without being able to, you know, directly speak against those individuals in court. They're able to find ways around that. And even in other ways, I did mention, I think, one case where there's a free man of color who basically manipulates his tenants into voting in certain ways. He can't vote, but he has white tenants who can vote, and he pushes them in a certain direction, which is not uncommon in that time period for wealthy people to tell their tenants how to vote.
1: It's one of the arguments against against letting uh, people without property vote, is that they will be manipulated by the people who have complete power over their lives. It was one of the examples for why women shouldn't vote either. No, you show so many creative moments, in particular very early on in the book, you note that there's a real difference between using a court in terms of bringing a lawsuit and talking about the law in terms of its enforcement. And I I feel like that's a really important thread as somebody who thinks about the history of law a lot throughout this book. Like in this period, it's not just bringing people to court, which is interesting. You can bring somebody to court, but you can't be a witness in your own case. But also just the challenging of enforcement and trying to get it before, using the threat of law. I found that to be um, really, really fascinating. Um, Tell me a little bit about churches. Uh, They play a role... Th- throughout the book, but in particular in this period. So just say a little bit more about um, about how men and women of free color use the churches, uh, the extent to which sometimes women are included and sometimes they are excluded.
0: Right. Yeah. So, I mean, free people of color, I think see the church as both a place where they are potentially oppressed, but also a place where there's a great deal of opportunity for them. Um, so in certain cases you have free people of color who are going to churches with white people and in those churches often they are limited in their power to control the affairs of the church. Uh, they're not allowed to be uh, officials in their churches or if they are, there are officials only within a segregated uh, part of the congregation. And so there's some pushback against that and some free people of color decide to found their own churches where they can have more autonomy um and within those churches you find i think greater opportunities for leadership among uh free men of color in particular but also free women of color free women of color play important roles in uh creating financial support for these institutions in particular so they're doing a lot of fundraising for the churches and sometimes the schools that are attached to their churches, um, even though they don't have like elite, you know, the official leadership role, they can't be a deacon in the church per se, but they're still doing quite a bit of work.
1: So Warren, um, as we're kind of wrapping up here, what, obviously you've been working on the study a long time. And, and, and most of the writers that I talk to have been working on their books longer than they anticipated and perhaps longer than, than they wished. Um, and I want to ask you about what you're working on next. But uh, as this is now in, in print, how do you see it um, moving our understanding of race forward? What, what do you want people to walk away from the book with? such that they look at the world differently and, um, and 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 think a little bit in a more nuanced way about American uh, racial history.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that I want people to uh, consider what freedom really means and all of the different types of uh, experiences that fit under this term freedom. So we tend to think about, oh, freedom is this place or this it's this idea that creates equality amongst all of us and i think that we see in the case of free people of color that that's not that's not actually what's going on for them uh in comparison to other people who are considered free in the society but also uh among that small group of people free people there's quite a bit of difference and that we have to take into serious consideration how uh other forms of status or positions within other hierarchies are influencing the day-to-day lives of uh, not just free people of color, but all people who are living in uh, the United States during the time that I'm researching, and even today, you know, we have these many of these same differences still impacting our society. That you know, your your family history matters as to where you fit in society, no matter whether you're a person of color or not.
1: No, and and as I said earlier, the the way I read the book, and I'm not sure this was your intent, is that I kept feeling like, wow, I am getting a primer on taxation history in the United States and the way it is that localities tax people, tax free people, tax... the way one could say that a baby born out of wedlock was necess- was, went to the state, that sort of a claim, like when you're talking about, well, what does freedom really mean? And that's something that's applying not just to free people of color, but to, to free white people. Then there's different rules for indigenous people. I, I really felt like this book was so layered in what it was teaching me about labor history and taxation um, and, and really in thinking about caste as well. What are you working on now? And, um, uh, yeah, and and tell me where you are in the process.
0: Yeah, so that's a tricky question, too. (laughs) I, I, you know, I'm kind of uh, looking through a lot of different possibilities. I've done a little research. I'll say this, that I don't think I'm done researching free people of color, exactly where that's going to go next. Still working on that. And I brought there, you know, several different areas of the of the lives of free people of color that I think I could easily investigate, and so just uh, the question becomes like which one am I going to focus on first? Uh, but I think that's all I can say about it right now.
1: Well, you just wrote two huge books and published them in two years. So no matter how much research you did and how long it took you, it's 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 always excellent to talk to an author who had a book come out last year and this year. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. I I enjoyed reading this book so much and I learned so much from it. So thank you so much for the care that you took writing it and for sharing your thoughts today.
0: Thank you for reading it. Thank you for having me on.